Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. In this episode, the Brothers in Crime examine the trial of Lizzie Borden, a woman accused of killing her father and stepmother by striking them in the head with an axe over and over again. The sensational trial gripped the nation, and now the question remains, was justice truly served? All right, so we're back to talk about the trial of Lizzie Borden, which it's like the original OJ trial. The Lizzie Borden trial was closely followed by the media. This was like a national sensation. Newspapers all across the United States were covering it at that time, and then even to now, it's widely regarded as one of the most infamous trials in U.S. history. The New York Times called Lizzie a fiend in human shape at one point. They also referred to her as the most heartless and brutal murderess who ever disgraced the age in which she lived. So that's the New York Times coverage. Then uh, on the other hand, you jump over to the Boston Globe. And remember, she's from Massachusetts. They suggested that Lizzie was being unfairly targeted because she was a woman. And the paper wrote that if Lizzie Borden is guilty, then it's the first time in the history of the world that a woman has committed such a crime. A quick recap, the murders occurred on August 4th, 1892. Immediately after the discovery of the bodies, there was an inquest held to determine the cause of death, which was typical. But of course, in this case, it's pretty obvious considering how much of their skulls and their brains were missing and the lacerations. There wasn't a whole lot of guesswork there. During the inquest, Lizzie gave contradictory statements. And this was a big part of what raised the investigators' suspicions and really caused them to hone in on her. There was a lot of this thing, then that thing. No, I meant this. And just all over the place, the investigators said that her demeanor, whether this was right or wrong of them, they just felt like it didn't line up with what they anticipated she should be acting like. And so after this week-long investigation, Lizzie was arrested and charged with the murders of her father and her stepmother on August 11th, 1892. What made them charge and try Lizzie and not the maid? I think part of it is there's just no real motive. Some people, in hindsight, have thought there's the window-washing theory, right? Like, all oh, they were mean to her and that kind of stuff. But when you look at motive means opportunity, you know, she certainly had some opportunity. The motive is weak. The means, it's there, I guess, as much as it is with Lizzie. But at the end of the day, I think the real breakdown was Lizzie stood to gain a ton of money from it. And the maid, on the other hand, she would basically lose her job. So it comes down to the difference between the two is the motive. Yeah, I think that's really it. I think for better or for worse, it seems like the investigators really honed in on Lizzie. And once they had her, we'll talk about it here in a little bit. It's not like Lizzie was the only potential suspect, but certainly she was the one that, you know, they just really keyed in on her and they stuck with her from the beginning. Okay. There was a preliminary hearing before the trial. And during the preliminary hearing, Lizzie actually fainted during the testimony of the doctor who performed the autopsies. And this moment was widely reported in the press, and it helped to create this sympathy and this notion that she's just this dainty lady, this good Christian woman. There's no way she could possibly have done this unless you're writing for the New York Times, and then you feel a little bit differently about it. But did she really faint? Well, there you go, right? You know if somebody really fainted or not. Right. You could pretend. Today we could figure that out, but we're in 1892, and medicine and patient assessments weren't what they are today, and you also didn't have any video coverage to go back and watch the videotape. They were not Instagramming the Lizzie Borden trial, that's for sure. Yeah, there was no TikTok. We were kind of left with newspaper accounts, which there would have been a limited number of people in the room. 
It would have been their impression of what happened. And again, given, you know, we go back to the police searching the house for evidence and they find a pail with bloody rags or something in it, which during homicide investigation seems like it should be pretty relevant. And she says, period. And they all just kind of turn and run. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that really just undermines or undercuts the thoroughness of the investigation for sure. Not to say, oh, that would have definitely been probative evidence, but certainly it should have been checked out. We're at a time where women did not have the right to vote yet. That's a good point. Crazy. I'm going to come back to that. The trial didn't start until June 5th, 1893. Okay, so the murders are August of 1892. So we're about a year later, June 1893, and they take place in the New Bedford Courthouse. This is about 15 miles east of Falls River. Now, the trial lasted for roughly 13 days, and during the this time, Lizzie was held at the Taunton Jail in Taunton, Massachusetts. She was initially in a cell on the third floor of the jail, which was reserved for female prisoners, but due to concerns about her safety and there was a risk, this was super sensationalized, so they were even concerned, what if she tries to escape? They moved her to a private cell in the jail's infirmary. But I will say, too, there's a lot of documentation that even though she was held for the trial, she was treated with kid gloves. She was allowed visitors and gifts and letters from well-wishers, but she was still closely monitored, but it wasn't maybe as harsh as it would have been. If you or me got arrested, it would have been a different picture for us. Sure. And she supposedly received visits from her sister, Emma, some other family members, and a friend, Alice Russell. Now, the judges for the Lizzie Borden trial, there was actually a panel of three judges. And I tried to look up some Massachusetts history on this. I don't know if that was standard practice at the time, or if maybe it was only in high-profile cases or what. I couldn't find an answer that I was satisfied with there, but it's clearly noted there were three judges, Caleb Blodgett, Justin Dewey, and Albert Mason. Now, it seems like Judge or Justice Dewey is the one who took the lead role in presiding over the case. He was 56 at the time of the trial. He was a a well-respected jurist in Massachusetts, and he had presided over some other high-profile cases, so it wasn't like he was new to this thing. He was appointed by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court to hear the case after the original judge, or one of the original judges, Josiah Blaisdell, recused himself due to a friendship with Andrew Borden. Because remember, Lizzie's dad, he's a prominent business guy, so it would make sense that he would have relationships with lots of folks, including judges. Now, Dewey, this lead justice, he was known for strict adherence to the rules of evidence and impartiality in the courtroom, and he was widely respected by the prosecution and defense bar during the Borden trial for his fairness and impartiality. There was some criticism of his handling of the trial by the media and in the public, particularly with some decisions on evidence and instructions to the jury. But those were all upheld by the higher courts. You can't make everybody happy all the time. Exactly. When you're a judge, you're usually going to be upsetting 50% of the people involved. Turning to the lawyers involved in the case, the prosecution was led by Hosea Knowlton, who was the district attorney for Bristol County, Massachusetts. The team also included William H. Moody, who later became U.S. Attorney General and a U.S. Supreme Court Justice. What about the jury? What did this jury look like? All right, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Okay, so... I I mean, in that time, assuming only dudes could be on a jury? We're going to get to that. I have one more paragraph of notes to talk through, and then we're on the jury. Because we got to talk about Lizzie's defense team, okay? So the prosecution's solid, but the defense team wasn't a joke either. I mean, this really was like the OJ trial before the OJ trial. She was represented by a team of lawyers that included Andrew Jackson Jennings, with a name like that, come on. 
and George D. Robinson. So they were the lead attorneys. They were both well-known lawyers in Massachusetts and had experience in criminal cases. And Robinson was governor of Massachusetts at one point in time. Now, the jurors you're asking about. So that obviously, or maybe not, there were 12 jurors in Lizzie Borden's trial, all of whom were men. Because at this point in time, women were still not allowed to serve on a jury. There were over 200 candidates that formed the jury pool that the 12 jurors were selected from. So at this point, we've got 12 old white guys. Their names are what you would expect. We've got George, Isaac, a few Charleses, Henry, another George, James, Frank, Edwin, another James, and an Albert. So that's your not diverse, not <laughs> reflecting the community so well jury pool. You're right. That is not a jury of the peers. And our justice system, I don't think it's perfect now by any stretch of the imagination, but even glaringly obvious at that time, she's supposed to be judged by a jury of her peers. These are clearly not peers. One, they all have the right to vote and serve on a jury, and she does not. And two, they're all men, and she's not. Yeah, yeah. Particularly with some of the stuff in this case, I think you can read into it one way or the other, but just with the narrative and some of the thinking of the time, there was a real impact on the fact that uh, the jury was made up of 12 guys instead of a mixture of people from the population. The jury was sequestered during the trial, they were instructed, as in cases today they would be as well, to avoid reading newspapers or discussing the case with anybody else. Turning more into the actual trial itself, there's no question, and we've talked about it, Lizzie, she's got motive, means, and opportunity. So she's a good suspect for this case, particularly because she stood to inherit a lot of money from her father, and she was home during the murders. And really, she was home and inside the house. That was, I think that's part of it with the maid, too. The maid was outside. The maid was working. The maid was doing this, doing that. Lizzie's just chilling in the house and somehow doesn't know that these murders take place. Yeah, but I'm still bothered by the fact that the maid went past where the stepmom was butchered and didn't seem to notice that. There's definite questions for both of them. They're good suspects. They're both good suspects. I'm not saying the maid did it, but I'm saying, I, how do you convince me that the maid didn't mm. to the extent that beyond reasonable doubt, Lizzie did? There's something just fishy about the whole thing. And I get there were four people in this house and two of them are now dead. So the obvious, it's one of these other two. And right now it sounds like the main difference we have is Lizzie had a motive and the maid didn't. The movie adaptation of this whole thing, I think it's called Lizzie, the one with Kristen Stewart. The maid and Lizzie are in it together. So, sure. I mean, yeah, that's a possibility, too. That would solve the dilemma of how either one of them didn't hear or see anything the whole time when this was a very, you would think, loud and visual killer. Yeah, for sure. During his opening statement, D.A. Moody carelessly threw one of Lizzie's blue frocks around on the prosecution table, and it managed to reveal the actual skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden because they were in the courtroom. They were going to be introduced in the case. And so according to a newspaper account, when that happened, Lizzie saw the skulls and it caused her to, quote, fall into a faint that lasted for several minutes, sending a thrill of excitement through all struck spectators and causing unfeigned embarrassment and discomfiture to penetrate the ranks of counsel. Oh, wow. You know, we're off to a hot start. We got skulls. We got fainting. We got lawyers who are probably not imagining that's how the case is going to start. It's interesting. So Moody goes on. His opening statement lasted for about two hours. He described Lizzie as the only person who had the motive and opportunity to commit the double murders and then pulled from a bag the head of the axe or hatchet that he claimed that Lizzie used to kill her parents. And this becomes an interesting point because uh, the investigators, they have the actual head of the hatchet, the metal part, but they couldn't find the handle 
So this becomes a point of contention in the trial that where's the handle if she if this is the murder weapon. Now, to your point, you brought this up a couple times, right? Lizzie wasn't the only suspect. And I think it's important to note that swirling around, we've got John Morse, Lizzie's uncle. He had been in town. He said he went to go buy some oxen. And so that's where he was. But there's this question about the property that was going to be left in the estate and whatever. And so that's why he was there in the first place. Of course, there's the maid. That's the big one, right? Bridget Sullivan. She's at home at the time of the murders. Some people, like the movie from last year, they've speculated that she was involved, but there's really no actual evidence other than it just makes sense that she was involved in it. Now, a plot twist, and this is hard to confirm or, or disprove. It's one of those just out there interesting, kind of like a JFK conspiracy theory. William Borden is supposedly, according to some, Andrew, Lizzie's father's, illegitimate son from an extramarital affair. And some people have speculated that he was involved in the murders due to a strained relationship with his father. So there's some kind of urban legend that he wanted his cut, his share from his biological dad. Now, records to prove this up are scant because at that point in time, if you were illegitimate, you didn't get a birth record like everybody else did. He existed, but to the extent that who did he belong to? Was he actually Andrew's son? All that kind of stuff up in the air. So this is one of those interesting conjecture type possible suspects, but it's worth mentioning. Did he stand to inherit anything? As an illegitimate kid, no. Part of the theory is maybe he and Lizzie worked something out where he committed the murders on Lizzie's behalf and then she's going to slide him a Benny after it's done or whatever. I think there was a Law and Order episode like that. Probably. These kind of cases, especially that go on the way this one did, there's going to be some theories out there and some are going to be good and some are going to be a little ridiculous. There was another guy, Charles Sawyer, a local man had been seen near the Borden home the morning of the murders. He was picked up and questioned, but ultimately he was released because there was just no evidence that he did anything. They checked into him and the police felt like he didn't have any involvement, but he was somebody that they looked at. And then there's a mysterious man, much like you would have in Law and Order or X-Files. Some witnesses had reported seeing a man near the Borden home on the morning of the murders carrying a bundle of something and acting suspiciously, but they were never able to identify who this was. Nobody knew who he was. He kind of becomes this like Bigfoot type creature in the trial that they can paint as like, well, it was the mysterious man. Decent scapegoat if you need one, I guess. Lizzie's attorneys also suggested that maybe Andrew had been killed by a business associate or somebody else. And as defense attorneys, they're not trying to prove somebody else did it. They're just trying to create enough of an inference or a question about who could have done it, then do you think Lizzie could not have done it beyond a reasonable doubt? Yeah, all they have to do is create a reasonable doubt, an alternate theory that's just enough to say, well, that's possible. My problem with the outsider theory is that it's an August morning, it's decent weather, there's people outside, and you have the maid and Lizzie inside who are at different places throughout the house. The maid starts off outside, she comes inside. You have two people milling around this house, and neither one of them claims to have ever seen anyone come or go or anything. You would think they would be right up front to say, wait, there was this strange dude, if there was. Yeah, Or this sure. strange chick. Or I heard something or I saw something. <laughs> the other thing that kind of ties in with that that makes it, in my mind at least, less likely that this is some sort of random act is the timing. The medical stuff wasn't great back then, but it sounds like there was at least enough of a gap. They believed at that time that there was a, at least an hour gap between when Lizzie's stepmom was murdered and when her father was murdered. Okay, so you mean to tell me that some random person breaks into the house, kills Abby, 
and then just hangs out there for an hour and then kills like why and some people say if it was targeted if it was an associate maybe he's coming to kill them both and the dad's out for the walk so he kills the but to me that's just it doesn't make sense i don't follow that it absolutely has to be specific random doesn't make sense for a couple of reasons if it was random why does he kill the stepmom wait an hour while completely hiding himself from maid and lizzie and then reappear kill andrew still not be seen and get out it was just just a random thing, some wacko off the street. None of that makes any sense. Yeah, you think Lizzie and the maid, they probably get killed. Also, I think it's important, you know, now you can't read too much into this, but the way that they were murdered is just, I mean, you, you're hatcheting somebody in the face. To me, at least, that seems more than just, you know, oh, I'm just going to randomly kill some people. That seems really personal. It seems really intense. So to me, that lends itself to this idea of there's some real pent up, there's some feelings involved in that. Or maybe there was a thought process in that of this will be quieter than a gun. Yeah, maybe. So that the neighbors won't suspect it. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's but, a good point. But then again, since the maid and Lizzie are both home, assuming one of them did it, whichever one of them was the killer could have shot both because they immediately, Lizzie screamed, father's dead, and they got help there. So whoever it was, if it was one of those two, wasn't trying to sneak off and have the bodies be undiscovered. But maybe the fear was if we shoot the stepmom and the neighbors hear that, then there'll be a ruckus and mm. I, whoever it was, wouldn't be able to off Andrew. Yeah, no, that's true. Really good point. All right, so jumping back into the trial, the evidence against Lizzie, it's basically circumstantial, right? There's no eyewitness. There's no smoking gun, if you will. There's no fingerprints. There's nothing that says, okay, yeah, here's this piece of direct evidence that ties you to this murder. Over 30 witnesses were called during the trial. This included family members, neighbors, police officers, medical experts. Some of the key witnesses, we've got Bridget Sullivan, who's the maid, obviously huge witness. She was there during the murders. She testified that she was in that room of hers on the third floor when she heard Lizzie call out that her father was dead. We've talked about her a good bit. There's lots of questions there. John Morse is the uncle who could have also been a suspect. Again, he testified he's out of the house when the murders occurred doing business. And I haven't seen anything to suggest that he wasn't where he claimed to be. My guess is that the police were able to check his alibi and felt satisfied that he wasn't there. There was also Alice Russell, who's one of Lizzie's friends. Now we've got old Seabury, Dr. Seabury Bowen. This is the family physician who lives across the street. He had taken care of them. He knew them really well. Part of his testimony had said, you know, I'd seen Andrew the day before. He seemed fine. Everything was good. Then we also had Dr. Dolan. This is the ME who conducted the autopsies on Andrew and Abby. And, of course, his testimony was that they were both killed with a sharp instrument, most likely an axe. There was also testimony from the neighbor who saw this man with a bundle near the Borden house on the morning of the murders and gives rise to this mystery man theory. And then Emma Borden, Lizzie's older sister, who was out of town at the time of the murders, also testified. What the hell could she testify about? She wasn't even there. Uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. She was called by the defense attorneys to oh, testify okay. on Lizzie's behalf. Gotcha. Now, by some accounts, Alice Russell, this friend of Lizzie's, had the most compelling testimony during the trial. She describes a visit from Lizzie the night before the murders in which Lizzie tells her that she's going to be going on a vacation soon and just felt, quote, something's hanging over me. I can't tell what it is. And then according to this Alice Russell, after Lizzie describes her parents' severe stomach sickness, 
Lizzie says, I feel afraid something's going to happen. She says that she wanted to sleep with one eye open half the time for fear that someone might burn the house down or hurt her father because he was so discourteous to people. Given the timing of things, is it a coincidence? Is it more than a coincidence? She could be really freaked out after the poisoning incident and thinking that bad things are coming based on that happening, or this could be part of her setting the stage to have Alice come tell this story at her trial. And so then turning questioning to Sunday after the murders, the DA Moody asked Russell about the dress burning incident. We talked about this earlier. So Alice recounted that when she asked Lizzie what she was doing with the blue dress, Lizzie said, I'm going to burn this old thing up. It is covered with paint. So on cross, the defense attorney, George Robinson, who was a governor of Massachusetts, he attempted through his questions to suggest that a guilty person who wanted to destroy incriminating evidence wouldn't do it the way Lizzie did it. Like, she's not going to just be out in the open burning up evidence. That's just, that's crazy, which is a great strategy. Doesn't necessarily hold water, but it's a good idea to paint this for the jury. Alice also recounted a conversation with Lizzie about a note, which Lizzie had received from a messenger on the morning of the murders, and this note was summoning her to visit a sick friend. Lizzie used this note to explain why she thought that her mother had left the home and therefore didn't think to look for her body after discovering her father's. Despite a thorough search of the Borden home, this note that Lizzie had told investigators about and had mentioned to her friend Alice was never found. During the trial then, Russell said that um, she sarcastically suggested to Lizzie that her mother might have burned the note, and Lizzie, according to Russell, replied, yes, she must have. It's just more evidence that it doesn't line up, but at the same time, we have Alice Russell testifying about something that Lizzie supposedly told her, so there's a lot of layers to this. Did Lizzie ever tell her that? In the first place. Was there yeah. ever a note? Did Lizzie take the stand? You just keep getting ahead of me. Just keep getting well, you need to move it along. You're like this daggone prosecutor that spent two hours on an opening statement. I'm like halfway through my notes. Calm down. According to a newspaper account of the trial, Lizzie's defense attorney, Robinson's performance, really impressed the reporters. One of them even wrote that the ex-governor is certainly without equal in New York City as a cross-examiner. He seemed ready to turn more or less to his own account nearly every government witness, according to one trial reporter. I think in modern words, they were saying he was pretty B.A. and that basically he could make the witnesses say what he wanted them to say, which that's really all you want on cross-examination. You just tell the jury what you're thinking. The best cross-examinations, you're not asking questions that you actually want the answers to. You're just telling the jury what you want the jury to hear through the questions to the witness that you're cross-examining. It sounds like this guy might have been charismatic, and the fact that he had served as the governor... Backs that up a little bit. Yeah, obviously he knew how to win people over. And in my experience, the likability mm -hmm. of the attorneys plays a factor. Yeah. Now, I'm going to answer your question. Lizzie did not testify during her trial, which, of course, that's her right. She doesn't have to. Smart move. Yeah. OJ didn't take the stand either, and he, he was acquitted. Now, the decisive moment in the trial might have come when the three-judge panel ruled that Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony, which, again, we've noted, right, that investigators were really frustrated by it. They thought it was full of contradictions and implausible claims. So the three-judge panel ruled that none of that could be submitted into evidence by the prosecution. So all of her conflicting statements and the things that sort of led prosecutors to latch onto her as the prime suspect now was ruled inadmissible and was not allowed to be entered into evidence. A huge hit to the prosecution's case. The judges concluded that Lizzie, at the time of that inquest, was for all practical purposes a prisoner charged with murders. And so her testimony during the inquest, made in the absence of her attorney, was not voluntary. 
they found that she should have been warned, that she had a right under the Fifth Amendment to remain silent. And because that didn't happen, they precluded the evidence. Wait, you mean the cops didn't Mirandize her? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, you got it. Now, this is a good bit. I think Miranda was in the 1960s, so we're a good bit before that. Well, that has me thinking, too, then, that this sounds like at least these judges figured out what they figured out in Miranda 60-some years later. Like, <laughs> why did it take 60-some years to figure this out? <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Massachusetts was just ahead of the times. So the prosecution rested its case on June 14th after one last defeat. Uh, the state wanted to have druggists, I think that's like old school terms for a pharmacist, Eli Bentz, recount his story of Lizzie Borden visiting a Fall River drugstore on the day before the murders and asking for 10 cents worth of prussic acid, which could be used as a poison. With the jurors excused, and it's worth noting, it must have been pretty hot because the jurors apparently left with a palm leaf fan in one hand and an ice water in the other. The judges listened to the state's argument for why this should be admitted, but ultimately concluded that the evidence needed to be excluded. They found that this evidence would be unfairly prejudicial, that it was probative, but it just wasn't germane to the question of whether or not Lizzie killed her parents. So it was excluded. The local newspaper at the time, the Fall River Daily Globe, was critical to police investigation and prosecution. The paper suggested the police had mishandled the evidence and that the prosecution had failed to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense presented only a handful of witnesses. We have Charles Gifford and Uriah Kirby, who reported seeing a strange man near the Borden house. So this is kind of short up the defense's mystery man theory. Dr. Benjamin Hanfee testified that he saw a pale-faced young man on the sidewalk near 92 2nd Street around 1030 in the morning on August 4th, the day of the murders. There was a plumber and a gas fitter who testified that in a day or two before the murders, they had been in the Borden's barn loft, which cast doubt on police assertions that Lizzie's alibi was suspect because dust in the loft appeared undisturbed. So the defense did a really good job of bringing in all these people to just poke holes in everything that the state was relying on in their case. Because again, it's circumstantial, so it doesn't take much to undercut that. Emma Borden, the older sister of Lizzie, was the most anticipated witness for the defense team. Emma testified that Lizzie and her father enjoyed a good relationship, which there's conflicting truth on this. She told jurors that gold ring that Andrew wore and was buried with, that Lizzie had given him that 10 or 15 years ago, and that he prized it highly. She also insisted that the relationship between Lizzie and Abby, the stepmom, were cordial, even as she admitted to lingering resentment herself over the transfer by her dad of a Fall River home, which Emma referred to as grandfather's house, to Abby and her sister. The defense had hoped that Emma might also testify that the Bordens had a custom of disposing remnants and pieces of dresses by burning, but the court ruled that that was inadmissible as well. You know, we see some signs here through this trial that the judges really did try to do the best they could in terms of really getting it so that the right evidence was in front of the jury and not to just let everything in on either side of the case. Apparently. Summing up for the defense, A.V. Jennings argued, there is not one particle of direct evidence in this case from beginning to end against Lizzie Borden. There is not a spot of blood. There is not a weapon that they have connected with her in any way, shape, or fashion. And then following Jennings, Governor Robinson, in his closing speech for the defense, because I guess they both got to say what they wanted to say, which isn't unusual in a case like this, 
He insisted that the crime must have been committed by a maniac or a devil, not someone with respectable background that Lizzie had. He said that the state failed to meet its burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It was physically impossible for Lizzie, without the help of somebody else, to have committed the crime within the timeline suggested by the prosecution. Robinson also ridiculed the theory that Lizzie might have avoided getting blood splots on her clothes by killing her parents while stark naked, and argued that the murders might well have been committed by an intruder who passed out of the house undetected. So again, he's just trying to lay any sort of theory to just undercut. Is there reasonable doubt? Is there any reasonable doubt? And the fact that there is no blood anywhere on uh, Lizzie, she didn't have blood on her, on her clothing, whatever, that's certainly a big gap. That and the missing murder weapon. Now, Zaya Knowlton summed up the prosecution's evidence. Then after that, Justice Dewey was the one who charged the jury. According to a newspaper report, had the judge, quote, been the senior counsel for the defense, making the closing plea on behalf of the defendant, he could not have more absolutely pointed out the folly of depending upon circumstantial evidence alone. It was, the newspaper said, a remarkable charge, a plea for the innocent. Judge Dewey spoke for those three judges, and he's the one that gave the jury instructions. He reiterated first the defense's point that the prosecutors had relied on circumstantial evidence. He also noted that the inconsistent statements were not to be considered as evidence that had been brought up. And he went on to remind the jury of their duty to Lizzie. He said, If the evidence falls short of providing such conviction in your minds, although it may raise a suspicion of guilt or even a strong probability of guilt, it would be your plain duty to return a verdict of not guilty. Seeking only the truth, you will lift this case above the range of passion and prejudice and excited feeling into the clear atmosphere of reason and law. Ooh, that's a whole lot of words. Yeah, it is. All right, so you want to guess how long the jury deliberated for? So the trial was 13 days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to guess two hours. That's a pretty good guess. That's solid. The jury deliberated for just over an hour before returning a verdict of not guilty. So there you have it. That was the trial. That seems like the right call, because is there a good chance she did it? Did she probably do it? Sure, but probably isn't mm. enough to take someone's life. I don't know if Massachusetts had the death penalty then, but probably isn't enough to take someone's life or put them in prison for the rest of it. Yeah, we don't send people to, we shouldn't send people to prison for probably, you're right. Generally speaking, the verdict was accepted pretty well. Most people agreed and felt that way. That's what should have happened. Now, after Lizzie was acquitted, she returned to her hometown, Fall River, she lived there with her sister for a little while in a large house that they purchased together. But their relationship reportedly became a little bit strained, and Emma eventually moved out of the house in 1905. Lizzie continued to live in that same house in Fall River for the rest of her life. She became increasingly reclusive and really avoided public attention. As you can imagine, something like this, it never left her like she was always Lizzie Borden. But interestingly enough, she changed her name right after all this went down from Lizzie to Lizbeth and reportedly tried to distance herself from the trial as much as possible. But of course, there's a limit to that. She remained active in the community and was involved with different organizations, some charities and social clubs, and she maintained relationships with a few close friends and acquaintances. Some people have speculated that one of her friends, Caroline, might have been a romantic relationship, but there's no real clear definitive evidence to support this. Whatever the nature of the relationship was, Caroline was a trusted friend and somebody that Lizzie was really close to and remained loyal with for the rest of her life. Lizzie was a devoted animal lover and kept many pets over the course of her life, including cats, dogs, and birds. And she was really involved in the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Animal Rescue League. She died on June 1st, 1927 at the age of 66 from complications of pneumonia. 
At the time of her death, her total estate was worth somewhere around $250,000, which 1927, that's roughly equivalent to a few mil today. So she was doing pretty well. And she lived completely off of the inheritance of her father. And she invested some of the proceeds from his estate. She managed it really well. She had a will that was drafted the year before she died that was in effect at her death. I think when somebody leaves a will, it reflects the things they care about, what they're interested in, or who they don't care about. Looking through her will, some of the things that jumped out were she left $500 to the city of Fall River to create a trust to care for her father's lot in the cemetery. She left her housekeeper $3,000, which at that time, that's a significant amount of money. The Animal Rescue League of Fall River. She left them $30,000. Wow. And her shares of stock in the Stevens Manufacturing Company. And she said, I have been fond of animals and their need is great. And there are so few who care for them. So it was really clear from her will that animals and that kind of thing, that was really important to her. There's plenty of other devices in here. She leaves some family members and friends, 5,000 here, 1,000 there. Is there anybody conspicuously left out or anybody that is oddly included? I did think one thing that was maybe interesting, but I can also understand it. She said, I have not given my sister, Emma L. Borden, anything as she has had her share of her father's estate and is supposed to have enough to make her comfortable. So did her and Emma split the estate when Andrew died? That the deal? Yeah, and so I can understand. I'm not going to give you more of what we already split, but I just thought it was interesting because to me that kind of underscored that their relationship had really just dissipated. I don't think so. And if you and I are both wealthy, yeah, I'm not going to leave you anything when I die if I know you're all set and taken care of and I can direct my money toward other causes that matter to me. I think that's fair, and I get that. But I also think when I look at some of these others, to Grace Terry, daughter of my chauffeur, $2,000. You're leaving your chauffeur's daughter a couple grand, which back then is like a ton of money. Sure, but there she was able to, I mean, that probably meant a whole lot. I would assume the chauffeur is not wealthy and neither is the daughter. So it, That's a good it, point. It seemed like she left money to people who really had never had money and tried to enrich their lives on her way out. So I can totally get that. Now, what happened to Andrew's maid? Did she just disappear after the trial? I can imagine maybe she didn't want to stay on and work with Lizzie anymore. Didn't want to live in that house. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm obsessed with this maid. That's okay. Got a maid thing. It's all right. The maid is like the Cato Kalin of this story. Yeah, she really is. I had to look it up. But I, my thought was that she moved not just like across town, but she she moved to Montana after this all went down. So like she got out. She got gone. Wow. That's across the country. And what the population of Montana then was like three? <laughs> yeah. If you counted the livestock too. Wow. Well, I mean, that's as good a reason as any to go find a new job. You're in a house where two people get axe murdered. Yeah, you wouldn't want anything to do with Massachusetts for a long time. People left Massachusetts for a lot less. After Lizzie died in 1927, she was buried in the family plot at Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River alongside her parents and other family members. And despite the passage of time and obviously a ton of interest in this case, it remains officially unsolved to this day. The coldest case, 120, 130 years. Wow. Now, when you say she's buried next to her parents, is that Andrew and the stepmom or Andrew and bio mom? Or is there is Andrew between stepmom and bio mom? wonder how that worked. I bet there's a way to find out. Let's see. Lizzie Borden's grave. Oh, there's a Friends of Oak Grove Cemetery. Interesting. Okay. Family monument. Lizzie's grave is the tiny one in the grass in the back. 
there's a monument to her mother, father, and stepmother. So okay. they're kind of all together. And then Lizzie's kind of off to the side a little bit there. And then the house was preserved or is yeah. now a, a museum? My understanding is it's like a bed and breakfast slash museum. So you can go and you can stay there. It's like a creepy Airbnb if you're into that. But then also they've kept it so that the rooms are still the rooms, somewhat accurate to time period. So you can go and, you know, lay on a couch that looks sort of like the couch and pretend like you're her dad, you know, hacked up, which is a bit macabre for me. That's a little weird. Some people are into that. If you're an amateur detective, you have the opportunity to go to the scene of the crime. It would be very interesting to check it out for yourself to just kind of see where it all went down. I don't think I'm getting on a plane to go there, but if I ever find myself passing through, what was it, Great River, Great Falls, Fall River? Something like that. If I see something with a fall or a river in Massachusetts, all right, hey, let's swing in there and check out the Borden house. Yeah. Interesting. For somebody that lives closer or is just like crazy interested, it's cool to know that the scene is still there. You can go check it out. Like you said, I don't know I'd go out of my way to go there, but if I was up that way, I would definitely try to make a pit stop. When you go somewhere where something historical or something important has happened, it's always different when you're there in person versus you see it on the movie or pictures or in a documentary or whatever. It's always different to take it in person. And sometimes you pick up things that you wouldn't through a picture. Sure. More of your senses are at work. We'll have links in the show notes for resources we've used and looked at, some of the movies that are out about this, websites and pages. And we'll try to include some pictures. But you want to read more about it. There is plenty out there on Lizzie Borden and the death of her father and stepmother. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Where are my pants? I gotta have pants.